2: Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning.
0: Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Welcome. This is a series of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. STORY NUMBER 1 APE-LIKE MONSTERS Sightings of monstrous ape-like creatures lurking in the darkness of forests and mountainous regions of the world have been reported since the Middle Ages. In 840 A.D., Agobard, the Archbishop of Lyons, told of three such demons, giant people of the forest and mountains, who were stoned to death after being displayed in chains for several days. In his chronicles, Abbot Ralph of Coggeshell Abbey, Essex, England, wrote of a strange monster whose charred body had been found after a lightning storm on the night of St. John the Baptist in June 1205. He stated that a terrible stench came from the beast with monstrous limbs. Villagers of the Caucasus Mountains have legends of an ape-like wild man going back for centuries. The same may be said of the Tibetans living on the slopes of Mount Everest and the Native American tribes inhabiting the northwestern United States. The Gilyaks, a remote tribe of Siberian native people, claim that there are animals inhabiting the frozen forests of Siberia that have human feelings and travel in family units. Based on the eyewitness descriptions of hundreds of reliable individuals around the world who have encountered these creatures, it would seem that the creatures are more human-like than ape-like or bear-like. For one thing, these giants are repeatedly said by witnesses to have breasts and buttocks. Neither apes nor bears have buttocks, nor do they leave flat-footed human-like footprints. In 1920, The term abominable snowman was coined through a mistranslation of the Tibetan word for the mysterious ape-like monster Yeti, wild man of the snow. For the next two decades, reports of the creature were common in the Himalayan mountain range, but it was not until the close of World War II, 1939-45, that world attention became focused on the unexplained, human-like bare footprints that were being found at great heights and freezing temperatures. The Himalayan activity reached a kind of climax in 1960 when Sir Edmund Hillary, conqueror of Mount Everest, led an expedition in search of the Lucy Yeti, and returned with nothing shown for his efforts but a fur hat that had been fashioned in imitation of the snowman's scalp. The human-like creature, whether sighted in the more remote wooded or mountainous regions of North America, South America, Russia, China, Australia, or Africa, is believed by some anthropologists to be a two-footed mammal that constitutes a kind of missing link between humankind and the great apes, for its appearance is more primitive than that of Neanderthal. The descriptions given by witnesses around the world are amazingly similar. Height six to nine feet, weight, four hundred to one thousand pounds, eyes black, dark fur or body hair from one to four inches in length is said to cover the creature's entire body with the exception of the palms of its hands, the soles of its feet, and its upper facial area, nose and eyelids. Some question the existence of giant ape-like creatures because there is so little physical evidence besides casts, of huge human-like footprints. Some researchers respond by pointing out that Mother Nature keeps a clean house. Scavengers soon eat the carcasses of the largest forest creatures, and the bones are scattered. Zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson suggested that if these beings are members of a subhuman race, they may gather up their dead for burial in special caves. Dr. Jean-Marie Theresa Kaufman agreed that the creatures might bury their dead in secret places. It may be, she theorized, that they may throw the corpses of the deceased into the rushing waters of the mountain rivers or into the abysses of rocky caverns. Others remind the skeptical that it is not unusual for certain of the higher animals to hide the bodies of their dead. Accounts of the legendary elephant's graveyard are well known. And in Ceylon, the phrase, to find a dead monkey, is used to indicate an impossible task. Proving the existence of such creatures may seem to many scientists to be an impossible task, but persistent searchers for undeniable evidence of the ape-like beings feel that proof is right around the next corner in some darkened forest. Delving Deeper Reports of a large ape-like creature in the United States and the Canadian provinces are to be found in the oral traditions of native tribes, the journals of early settlers, and accounts in regional frontier newspapers. But wide public attention was not called to the mysterious beast until the late 1950s, when road-building crews in the unmapped wilderness of the Bluff Creek area north of Eureka, California, began to report a large number of sightings of North America's own abominable snowman. Once stories of giant human-like monsters tossing around construction crews' small machinery and oil drums began hitting the wire surfaces, hunters, hikers, and campers came forward with a seemingly endless number of stories about the shrill, squealing, seven-foot forest giant that they had for years been calling by such names as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Walkwalk, Wak, Oma, or Susquehavis. In North America, the greatest number of sightings of Bigfoot have come from the Fraser River Valley, the Strait of Georgia, and Vancouver Island, British Columbia, the Ape Canyon region near Mount St. Helens in southwest Washington, the Three Sisters Wilderness west of Bend, Oregon, and the area around the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation especially at the Bluff Creek watershed northeast of Eureka, California. In recent years, extremely convincing sightings of Bigfoot-type creatures have also been made in areas of New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Florida. Reports of Bigfoot-type creatures of California go back to at least the 1840s, when miners reported encountering giant, two-legged, beast-like monsters during the gold rush days. Sightings of the Oma, as the native tribes called them, continued sporadically until August 1958, when a construction crew was building a road through the rugged wilderness near Bluff Creek, Humboldt County, and discovered giant, human-like footprints in the ground around their equipment. For several mornings running, The men discovered that something had been disturbing their small equipment during the night. In one instance, an 800-pound tire and wheel from an earth-moving machine had been picked up and carried several yards across the compound. In another, a 300-pound drum of oil had been stolen from the camp, carried up a rocky mountain slope, and tossed into a deep canyon and in each instance, only massive 16-inch footprints with a 50- to 60-inch stride offered any clue as to the vandal's identity. When media accounts of the huge footprints were released, people from the area began to step forward to exhibit their own plaster casts of massive, mysterious footprints and to relate their own frightening encounters with hairy giants, stories that they had repressed for decades for fear of being ridiculed. Not to be outdone, Canadians began telling of their own startling accounts with Sasquatch, a tribal name for Bigfoot, that had been circulating in the accounts of trappers, lumberjacks, and settlers in the Northwest Territories since the 1850s. Long before the frontier folk discovered the giant of the woods, the Sasquatch had become an integral element in many of the myths and legends of the native people. Copyright, The Gale Group, Inc. This article from Keep Media carried no author, citation, or date. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Bigfoot hunter trusts his nose to find creature. Big Cypress Bayou near Jefferson, Texas. The motor sputtered then died, and as the canoe drifted deeper into the swamp, gray tangles of bearded Spanish moss gave way to murky water and black cypress. Knuckles whitened as Charles DeVore ripped the pull cord. His two-man canoe, three decades old and uneasy under the weight of three men, teetered dangerously with every tug. DeVore yanked the cord once more, then gave up. We'll just have to paddle, he said. There wasn't time to fix the propeller, and there wasn't time for precaution. The party pressed further into the swamp, because that's where Bigfoot was. Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, that elusive creature more often associated with the Pacific Northwest, lives among these knobby trees of the Big Cypress Bayou, DeVore will tell you. While other people have seen the creature, DeVore, well... He has smelled it. Of course, it's the most indescribably putrid, gosh-awful stench you can imagine. It's overpowering, DeVore said. DeVore has discussed that stench with dozens of East Texans who have reported brushes with the hairy hominid. He investigates sightings for the Texas Bigfoot Research Center, a Dallas-based group that documents close encounters throughout the state most of them in the piney woods and big thicket. Although DeVore professes to be an amateur, he knows enough to understand the creature's ways. Bigfoot no longer scares me, said DeVore, of medium height and a bit paunchy at sixty-four. It might if one was standing right over me, but they've never hurt anybody. I have a fear of wild hogs, wild dogs, and anything else out there that might bite my butt. But I really have no fear of Bigfoot. So, Devore paddles the bayou in the middle of the night, a coon hunting spotlight and night vision camera at his side. He also wanders the forest trails he is bush hogged near his trailer house. He sniffs the night air and listens for snapped twigs. It's a hobby, he said, a passionate interest. Devore moved to the big cypress bayou, the slow moving body of water that slinks between. Lake of the Pines, and Cattle Lake in 1990. A heart attack had forced him into early retirement. He told himself, I'm going to sit up here beside this water until the day I die and enjoy it. And that's just what he did, puttering around in his canoe with the little outboard motor that he had rigged to the back or gliding across the deep green water in his kayak, exploring inlets and taking photographs. It's so beautiful out here, he said. Normally I'm not talking, and I sneak up on all kinds of wildlife. As he paddled deeper into the forest of submerged cypress trees, stained black by years of up-and-down water levels, thoughts returned to the rickety little canoe, then to the cold black water, and always to the possibility of sneaking up on the most elusive creature of them all. THE WAYS OF BIGFOOT Although Bigfoot is reportedly huge, seven or eight feet tall, and more than five hundred pounds, he's awfully hard to find. That's because he hates being around humans, believers say. When people such as Devore go tromping into the woods, Bigfoot runs the other way. He lives in uninhabitable areas, especially around Sabine and Sulphur rivers, the big and little cypress bayous, and Caddo Lake, where he is affectionately known as the Caddo Critter. "'We have more swampy areas in East Texas where humans do not live,' DeVore said. "'There's more sightings during the deer season than any other time because people are in the woods. "'With the advent of ATVs, outdoor enthusiasts can go farther into Bigfoot territory than ever before.' In the past decade alone, the Texas Bigfoot Research Center has investigated five sightings in Harrison County, four in Panola County, and three in Russ County. Many of them involved hunters. One Longview man said that he tried to shoot the creature with his twenty two. It let out a terrifying scream roar, and the squirrel hunter was so frightened he nearly wet himself, he reported. The Longview man's description of Bigfoot reflects many others in East Texas. Long brownish or black hair, the deathly scream-roar or scream-growl, and that stench which DeVore believes Bigfoot excretes, possibly from his armpits when he feels threatened. Crystal Steiniger of Harleton says that she has experienced the smell and heard the screams. Steiniger and her colleagues with the East Texas Bigfoot Independent Study get together once a month to look for tracks and hair samples and record Bigfoot's noises on all-night camping trips. They used to attract the creature with Bigfoot calls, but they soon abandoned the calling devices because they made it too aggressive. If they're walking by us, we want to hear their normal, non-threatening type of vocalizations, she said. Adding later, I've heard solid screams. I've heard grunts, kind of a grunt growl when you get a little too close. That was one of the best recordings. Of course, we got in our vehicle real quick. We didn't leave, but we got in our vehicle. The researchers have posted many of the recordings on their website, www.easttexasbigfoot.com. With so many reported encounters, skeptics quickly ask for conclusive proof. Hair samples, or bones, for example. It's well known and not disputed that we have black bears in East Texas, devour counters. Nobody's ever seen a body or a skeleton of those. Predators in East Texas, which are numerous, take care of a body almost overnight. There are many theories, one, that they may carry their bodies off, after all, these are groups of them. It's not one lone animal. People have taken pictures of black bears, the skeptics note. One of those skeptics is Charlie Mueller, a Longview-based wildlife biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He managed the Cattle Lake Wildlife Area for eight years, and he said he's never seen evidence of Bigfoot's existence. there's a bear out there, I'm going to find bear tracks. If there's a human out there, I'm going to find footprints, he said. But there's no Bigfoot tracks that I've seen. Mueller said he's studied supposed Bigfoot nests, but to him they just looked like a pile of branches that had fallen from a tree during an ice storm. People let their imaginations take control a lot of times, and it's easy for someone to point out things that seem to be out of the ordinary that actually are not, he said. But to layman folks, people that don't know a lot about wildlife and the happenings of wildlife in their habitats, a lot of times they don't understand the normal things that go on. Fear of that kind of rebuttal, Devore and Steinerger say, keeps many witnesses from coming forward. A lot of people will think they're nuts, or... If they do mention it to somebody, they'll say, Oh, it was just a bear. You don't know what you're talking about, Steiniger said. They'll kind of blow it off and not take it seriously, because there's been a lot of people who have spent a lot of time out in the woods who have never seen a thing. They're happily trotting along without a clue, says Devore, You're going to be ridiculed. You're thinking you're nuts, so most people are real reluctant to talk. If they are going to speak to you, you've got to be real quiet about it. Of course, being in the club gives me credibility. On the Bayou It was a perfectly clear October afternoon on the bayou, and Charlie DeVore sliced his canoe through red and green water rippling under a light breeze. He had agreed to guide a reporter and photographer to the site of two Bigfoot encounters, that he'd investigated, only a half a mile from his house. Because the land had changed hands, the only legal access was via boat, or, in this case, an old canoe. It's better to stick to the water this time of year, anyway, he said, because it's not too smart to traipse through the woods in the middle of deer season. As he guided the canoe, he recalled his first encounter. He hadn't even realized how close he'd come to meeting Bigfoot on that night as he walked the trails near his house. "'I'd always gone with four dogs, sometimes five, a couple of my own plus the neighbors. These dogs generally were not afraid of anything,' he said. "'When I hit that stench, I looked around for the dogs and realized, hey, (laughs) I was alone.' He whistled and snapped his fingers, but the dogs wouldn't come. They just sat there squirming. I decided the dogs were smarter than me, so I went away, he said. The next night, the same thing. It went on occasionally for six weeks, he said. I wouldn't run into it every night, but it got to be the old hat that when I ran into the stink, I'd just turn around. He questioned hunters and outdoor enthusiasts who suggested that it might have been a wild hog, but DeVore knew better. He'd smelled hogs, and it wasn't the same. In 2002, DeVore heard about the annual Texas Bigfoot Conference in Jefferson. This year's event begins at 10 a.m. Saturday at Jefferson High School. DeVore went and then returned to the bayou with some answers and more than a few new questions. After going to that conference and finding out, hey, these things have a stink, I started talking to people who had the stink on them before, he said, and the stink described was just too close to what I had experienced. At that point, I had already gotten curious about them. I talked to dozens of people who had experienced it. But stinking isn't believing, and Devor still hadn't seen one. He gunned the boat into the swamp, past hulking primeval trees and low-lying branches toward Bigfoot a close encounter. When the cypress became so thick they crowded out the sun, their reflections vanished from the bayou's surface. The water instantly was black. The canoe, further now from the channel's current, cut through a sheet of scum. Devore talked above the hum of the outboard motor. Suddenly it cut out, and he couldn't get it going again. Unseen crows shrieked In the abrupt silence, DeVore took the paddle and rowed through Benton Lake, a small stagnant body of water that adjoined the bayou, until the trees kept him from going any further. Over there, he said, pointing to a spot on the lake's southwestern edge. The witness had been hunting deer as he crouched behind dense brush at mid-afternoon. He reported to the Texas Bigfoot Research Center that he noticed movement in the corner of his eye. Fifty yards away, the hunter told DeVore that Bigfoot emerged from the water, stood up, looked side to side, then walked into the woods and disappeared. The hunter watched him for about two minutes. The creature was six feet tall and covered in hair from head to toe, and in the absence of direct sunlight he appeared to be completely black. Devor, having interviewed the hunter several times, deemed him a very credible witness. Finished with his story, Devore docked the canoe on a muddy bank that had built up along the edge of a massive cypress tree and fiddled with the motor. A piece of twine had wrapped itself in the propeller, and after he unwound it, it cranked on the first pole. He ordered the heaviest of his passengers into the bottom of the canoe, stabilizing it, and he took off for home. Though he did not see Bigfoot today, he knew it was only a matter of time. It exists, he said. Too many people have seen it. It exists. Story originally published by the Longview News Journal, Texas, West Ferguson, October 17th, 2004. This is the end of story number two. Story number three, Fort Hall, Bannock County, Idaho, August 2012, a conversation I had. All the activity mentioned is southeast Idaho near Fort Hall, like the camping trip with rocks was around Fort Hall, Idaho, where there is a lot of Bannock and Shoshone Native Americans. Every fall I drive up Highway I-15 from Southern California to Montana to hunt with friends there. I tend to find myself stopping in Pocatello, Idaho, for a motel, and also visit a certain bar there. Twice I have run into a man I will call Gary, for this submission is without his knowledge. I had a casual conversation with Gary at the bar in November 2011. Now, before I go on, I want to mention we were drinking beer, and no other kind of liquor is served there. He and I just happened to walk in about the same time and then started talking, so we were not intoxicated. Since I had met him a year prior, I felt like this was an instance of synchronicity, and maybe there was something special that he was about to share with me, so I asked him some questions. Not able to repeat the conversation verbatim, these are the answers and stories I got from him, which I wrote down an hour later when I got back to my motel room. I asked him if he was a Native American. He said yes, half Bannock Indian and a tribal member. His age was early fifties. When I asked him if he had ever seen a Bigfoot, he snapped back a bit and then turned his back to me. I thought to myself, here's another person who might think I'm a nut job. But then Gary turned around slowly and, facing me, he said, Three times, he went on. I grew up in the Fort Hall, Idaho area. My earliest recollection was a camping trip as a small boy in the early 1960s. My father, cousin, and I were walking through a canyon and "'something threw rocks the size of baseballs at us from afar. "'There was also the sound of timber cracking. "'My father told us we needed to leave the area "'as we are not wanted by the mountain people. "'We are the Agai people, meaning salmon-eating, "'and we know all the good salmon runs. "'Tell me about seeing one.' "'I saw one in the afternoon on a dirt path below me in a small canyon.' The Bigfoot was dragging a sagebrush to erase his tracks and conceal his footprints. They will also step on stones when they can to avoid making tracks. Well, you mentioned three sightings you've had. Where? Around Eel River, Trinity Forks, Snake River. Some people ask if they are real, then why are there never any bones found? Do they bury their dead? Yes, but in water, weighted down in rivers or ponds with stones. So we're talking about an animal that is shy, clever, and territorial, all signs of an intelligent creature. They are more of a spirit than a human. And at this point, Gary seemed to lose interest and change the subject. I sensed the subject of Bigfoot was somewhat taboo for him to tell me about. And not meant for the non tribal. Todd C. Homer, August 23rd, 2012. That's the end of story number three. Story number four Keno Hill, Yukon Territory. Keno Hill, Yukon Territory, summer 2000. I'm not sure which summer it was, maybe five, six years back. The wife and I were returning from Keno Hill early one morning. Our coffee thermos was in the back of the truck, and it was my fault it was back there. She wanted coffee, so we stopped some miles before Elsa and got out to get the thermos and relieve myself on the side of the road. There was a stand of trees there. I wandered off a ways, walked way up there, I don't know just why I did that. It was there that I seen this bear sitting down at a carcass of elk. Maybe deer, don't know what that carcass was for sure. Not much left of it. No rack, mostly a skeleton, maybe a doe. I'm thinking it was black bear at first sitting down beside the remains, but that be some unusual black bear. Bears usually stand up and tear at their kill and eat it standing up. This bear sat there, pulling at what was left of it. Way off in the distance, there be a fox pacing back and forth, awaiting its turn at the kill. And just then, my wife yelled at me to get myself back in the truck. The bear heard her, and stood up on two legs, looking in my direction. I fell backwards a bit at its size. By God, I seen it was no bear. I believe it was a boke and it had a piece of something from the carcass clutched in its hand. I don't know what, looked like weeds. It stood there looking at my direction, and the fox took off at a dead run. The wife yelled again, and this boat started waving its arms up and down, and stomping forward on one leg at me. Damn, I couldn't make these legs of mine move. I seen that it was black, and... It was naked except for hair around the usual male parts, chest, arms, and it was unshaved looking. The beard was long and scraggly with crud and stuff in the whiskers. It took a step to my direction and stomped a foot waving its arms like a crazed man might if he was high on something. I fell back again and started crawling like a baby to the truck on my hands and knees and finally was able to get up and run to the truck. I saw my wife looking big-eyed at me. Behind me, on the top of the area where the stand of trees was, be that boke, standing watching us get into the truck. We started the engine up and drove off, leaving the damn thermos out in the middle of the road there. My woman is Tashoni, First Nation Canadian, and I am English, and probably Micmac, though... I was raised up an orphan by whites named the Thomas clan in a settlement near Nova Scotia. We married thirty-eight years ago, and her folk know the bulk, but we don't see any in our lifetime until that day. I was never taught about bokes. My woman told me what her people know. It was a shock to both of us. The bulk is a strange marvel. Yes, it is a strange sight." "'The wife says it is good to see one. "'I don't know how good having the shit scared out of me "'can be a great blessing, but she says so, and I listened. "'We don't speak about this much. "'The wife is still mad at me because I lost the thermos of coffee. "'I could have been killed, and she would still be mad about the thermos. "'We don't own a computer. "'My friend here at the petrol stop... Looked up and found your website listed. So we tell you about this incident. About the bulk, we are not sure on height. I was in shock when it stood up full size and not thinking clearly, but I know it was maybe eight feet up and features fitting to its size. At the time, it could have been ten feet tall for all I noted. I don't know what it weighed. I didn't stop to ask, ha-ha, but... "'It was sturdy, stocky, and plenty of bulk. "'I weigh 240 pounds, and a mid-sized man. "'The bulk must weigh double what I weigh. "'There was no sound except the stomping sound. "'No smell. "'Was black, and had whiskers and long straight hair "'like woman down its back and shoulders, "'black like shiny. "'There was nothing else around but a pacing fox.' Nothing else I can think of. I was sure it was a black bear before it stood up and started waving his arms and stomping. My God, I get hair on my neck when I think about it. My wife said the boke is leftovers from cast-out Indian tribe. Most was killed or run off. Not many left since white men came here, and what's left is scattered and shy. They tell me the boke is skilled hunter and opportunist that works mostly after dark of nightfall. Leonard Jack Thomas Edited for Readability and Logged, April 2005 This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Broward County, Alligator Alley, Florida, 1960 It all happened in August of 1960. I was twelve years old. I was with my mother and stepfather on a vacation trip to South Florida. It was my first trip away from home. We lived in a small town, Longwood, north of Orlando, and this trip was about all we could afford for a week. I remember we headed down the east coast through Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and on to Miami, and all the way to Key West. No interstates in Florida back then. Once we came back to the mainland, we went to the Miami Zoo one morning, and then headed west on Alligator Alley through the Everglades to Naples. It is very hot and humid in South Florida compared to the rest of Florida since it is in a subtropic zone. The car was not air-conditioned. I remember sitting in the back seat with my head close to the window to catch the wind. That is when I spotted it. It was standing, facing the highway, in front of a small hammock of knee-high grass, whole meadow shrubs, and a few pine and palm trees, about 150 feet from the road. We locked eyes for the entire duration of the sighting. I can remember flipping back in the seat and watching it through the rear window until I couldn't see it any longer. It was not massive, but not thin, tall, maybe seven feet, medium brown, the color of a coconut. I could not see the feet or knees, no neck. I do not remember any facial feature other than dark eyes, and I did not see a profile. It turned its upper body as it stared, not its head. No odor. I did not say a word since it did not strike me as being unusual. We had just come from the Miami Zoo, and this was my first trip from home, and I had seen all kinds of strange animals for the first time that morning. This memory is so specific. When we arrived in Naples, I can recall swimming in the pool at the motel and thinking how hot that animal must be in all that heat with all that fur. The words Bigfoot and Sasquatch were unknown back then. I don't recall giving any thought to this creature until the 70s, When my son and I watched a show called In Search Of. Then I was so busy with work, home, and family, and doing things for my husband's company, I didn't find the time to go to the library and research the subject. It crossed my mind briefly back in the mid 80s after a TV show, but nothing seriously. Obviously, this was all prior to easy access to any topic on an in home computer. Then, I watched A Monster Quest back in the 1st of 2008 and googled Bigfoot after that show. A whole new world opened up. Most of the sightings of Bigfoot in Florida are in Collier County, Everglades. There is one report on another database very similar to mine concerning some college kids heading to Miami on the same road and seeing a Bigfoot watch them go by from a hammock. Alligator Alley to native Floridans is two-lane State Road 41 from Naples to Miami not Interstate 75 it was also known as the Tamiami Trail Lynn Chandler Destin, Florida that's the end of story number five story number six Bigfoot Creatures Photographed in California's Sierra National Forest July 28, 2009 The Bigfoot creature may have been captured on a remote trail camera placed in the Sierra National Forest based on photography evidence released by Sanger Paranormal Society. Investigator Jeffrey Gonzalez said Tuesday night that multiple cameras were put in place in this remote area on Memorial Day weekend. Retrieved on June 7, 2009. Gonzales said they did not immediately see the evidence, but upon closer inspection noticed what appears to be the Bigfoot creature. Gonzalez said a group returned to the site to review the exact capture spot after many theories surfaced once the original image was released in early July. The tree stump theory was ruled out, he said, because the dark object is not there. Gonzales said the bear theory does not stand up either, because the image does not have a snout on the head. You can see features of a human face, such as the nose, mouth, and chin, Gonzalez reports. The arms on a bear, when standing, do not hang that far down. We also took measures on how high this thing was. According to the leaves and the branches that were covering the object's face, The tape measure said it was between 8 and 9 feet tall. The same camera that took the picture of the object also took pictures of other objects such as black bear and deer which does not resemble the object in any way. Photo: Jeffrey Gonzalez standing in the same spot as the object in the image. Gonzalez said that Bigfoot investigator David Ragoza has been visiting this location for six years after an elderly Native American pointed it out to him. He told David that this spot in the forest was sacred Indian land, and that weird things happen here. He said David has had many individual sightings and has collected footprints, but has never captured anything with the camera until now. Returning to the exact spot where the image was captured, Gonzalez said that the angle of the hill was 45 degrees which would make it difficult for a bear to stand upright. He also said the object was clearly brown in color, ruling out the black bear. The Bigfoot creature has been reported in many different parts of the country during the 20th century, including an outbreak during 1973 and 74, primarily in southwestern Pennsylvania, and investigated by Stan Gordon. During that period, Hundreds of Bigfoot sightings were reported, as well as hundreds of UFO reports. No photographic evidence exists from that time, although Gordon collected many footprints in that region. Aside from this single image, Gonzalez points out that there were three additional images taken several days earlier near midnight, where a bright light lit up the area. His group cannot account for how this happened except that they are all ruling out a flashlight as the source of the light in the images. Examiner.com Photos, Jeffrey Gonzalez and Dave Ragoza. Comments I don't believe the Ragoza photo of the Bigfoot shape is anything more than a naturally occurring shadow or dark spot on the background tree. And here's why. The photo of the Bigfoot and the subsequent photo of the man, are clearly taken from different angles. The first photo was taken from a position considerably to the right of the position from which the second photo was taken. This is made most evident by the fact that the tree against which the man is framed is not even visible in the original photo. I've highlighted some of the most prominent visual landmarks in each photo. The Bigfoot figure in red, as you can see, It's still there in the second photo, but cropped so that only the front of the figure is visible. The leaves of what appear to be a vine maple in green, higher and to the right of the second photo from their position in the original. The large tree to the left in purple. Notice how no part of it is obscured by leaves in the second photo. And the line of bark texture on the foreground tree in blue. In the original photo, this line is well on the left side of the tree trunk and the second photo, it is almost centered. I think that if one were to return to that spot and really line up one's camera to the position from which the original photo was taken, one would see the Bigfoot standing there. It's too bad the photos are too small. If they were larger and clearer, I believe the discrepancies between them would be more evident. Seeing may be believing, but it's not always the truth. Randy Stradley, September seventh, two thousand nine. This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed those stories. I'm going to start off
2: with the first one, Tom. I think it's really interesting. You I know, mean, we talk about, of course, this show is Bigfoot in history, so that's what we're interested in our historical accounts. And the first story, excuse me, they talk about. There was an archbishop of lyon there was an account and this was from the middle ages they talk about 840 a.d they had three they called them demons three told of three such demons giant people of the forest and mountains who were stoned to death after being displayed and changed for several days I, I think that's pretty interesting number one how they caught them right uh, and secondly they stoned them to death i mean that must have been uh, that must have been quite a spectacle
1: well, I wondered about that, too, because these things, in this day and age, they reciprocate. They stone people. You get these rocks flying at 150 miles an hour. I mean, they make Nolan Ryan look like, you know, nothing. Right. Um, so, yeah, you're right. That must have been really a spectacle. And maybe it was a much smaller version. That's what I was wondering. You of could, these creatures
2: Oh, you know, that's very possible Because I'm thinking that was in Europe, obviously The Middle Ages, so It could very well have been a smaller version Here's an interesting part of that story, too or not that story, but that uh, that reading Where they talk about On the slopes of Mount Everest And the native folks there The uh, Where they talk about And this is interesting Now, in that part of the world In eastern uh, Russia and Siberia they call the creatures gill yaks. And if you go to Alaska, you remember the story about gill.
1: Yeah, that was absolutely. the, uh,
2: where the natives in Alaska, or they called them, uh, Oh geez. I can't think of the term it was the, the big man who wore a little hat. I think that's what they called it. But where the natives were talking to the white trappers and they showed them its mark where it, it mangled the tree up. But it's interesting, the correlation, you know, the similarity in names.
1: It's, it's absolutely interesting. And I was doing some research way back in the day when I started to create the web page uh, for Creek Devil. And there's a name that one of the popular monikers um, before Creek Devil, or actually before Bigfoot, <clears throat> rather, is uh, from the Klamath tribe. And I can't remember the word off the top of my head. But they said the vowel, one vowel is is the only difference between the way the Klamath pronounce it and the way the Tibetans pronounced their creature in the Himalayas.
2: Well, it makes sense. I mean, it's theorized that people came across the land bridge from Siberia to Alaska, so a lot of the words and the languages should be very similar.
1: But think about the linguistics. Yeah, they should, exactly. I just thought it was just fascinating that through all that distance and time, the name really hadn't been corrupted uh, that much. So, you know, here's or change, I should say, yeah, not here, corrupted. Here's
2: another little piece that I, I never really thought much about, but when they talk about the creature's appearance, they said a little more human-ish than ape or bear, and and one of the points they made was that uh, the creatures reportedly said by witnesses to have breasts and buttocks and neither apes nor bears have buttocks. So I thought that was kind of an interesting
1: piece. Yeah, exactly. So again, um and this is why we are this is part of the reason we're doing Bigfoot in history are these repeating patterns. One of the things that in Jim's story, one of his one of the stories he read, he said, you know, the descriptions are similar Given by witnesses, they're actually amazingly similar from around the world. It's the same thing.
2: Further into that story, when they were talking Ivan Sanderson had a piece in this where um when he was talking about subhuman race and they were talking about their dead and what they might do with the dead. And apparently and of course they made some suggestions about you know what they might do with the corpses and all that. But um they were talking about and it's, there was a phrase, apparently, there was a phrase, to find a dead monkey is...
1: You took the words out of my mouth. What, what well, was the phrase?
2: Was... My, I, my my notes here are not complete. For some reason, that piece is missing.
1: To find it... Okay, so this was... He said in Ceylon, which Ceylon is now Sh- Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, yeah. Yeah, but to find a dead monkey... To find a dead monkey is a saying in Sri Lanka uh, indicating an impossible task. And that's a monkey. Yeah, that's a, big... a
2: monkey. Yeah, so I mean... Yeah it's kind of the same, the same kind of holds true with these things.
1: Exactly. So, and that's actually an excellent point because I think that's one of the big counter arguments that the skeptics as well as the debunkers and, you know, we call them scoffers all say, well, gosh, you know, there's no, where's the evidence? You know, where's the bodies? Right. You want to see a body? Well, well, that's, that's the whole point of this is that Good luck finding, you know, we could say, um, to find a dead bear here in the Northwest. It's Good difficult. Luck with
2: that. It's difficult. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very, very, very difficult. And and in spite of that, you have at least one story of a Canadian uh, couple that found one of these things dead on the beach, and the the, the woman. Yeah, uh, that was took the jawbone.
2: That was one of John Green's stories
1: yeah Here's, so it's not like they're not out there
2: right there was another one more one more point with this story i know we're just on the first one but but it's good because you're you know we can discuss these more interesting ones i i picked up on this part because you have a direct connection to it when we're talking about the uh the bluff creek area when we talked about things being seen from the beginning of the gold rush days in the 1840s and but there was the one point about the 800 pound tire from an earth moving machine <laughs> that was picked up right? and carried several yards across the, the compound. Uh, and I knew, I actually met one of the guys, they talked about these 300 pound oil drums. Now this one had been stolen and carried, uh, up a Rocky mountain slope and tossed into a deep Canyon. Now that one with that tire, that was, I guess you can talk about that. That was your relative
1: yeah it was uh, actually it's my aunt's uh husband um uh, so it wasn't he's not a blood relative but it was you know her, her, um, her husband and i you know i call him uncle I and mean, what else am i going to call him sure um and it was his dad that this happened to him and i was just flabbergasted when he told me the story now he doesn't follow all this stuff so it's not like he you know, went out and gathered up this information and concocted this story. This actually happened because his dad told him, he said, well, and he was very detailed and very specific. He said when they were building roads right after World War II through Northern California to get, you know, you have, obviously you got to have roads if you're going to do logging.
2: Yeah.
1: And they had uh, crews that would run behind the road grader. They were called swampers. And the swamper was just, their job was to pick up the big rocks and any kind of large debris that the road grader had left behind, and they just threw it off to the side. So and the majority of the swampers were uh, from some of the Native American tribes up there. So long story short, um, what the road and they'd always take the spare tire of the road grader made zero sense to leave it in the camp. And then right. if you have, a, you have a need, you know, go down and get it. So anyway, it was uh, they came up one day in, in the morning and the tire was not seen. It was actually found heaved across the ravine on the other side of the ravine. It was not rolled because there's an excellent no damage to any of the brush. And the foreman said, Well, listen, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to send you swampers down there with a couple of you guys down and you're going to take this cable and you're going to hook it up to the tire and we'll drag it up with, uh, you know, that a winch. And that didn't happen because the swampers all said nope.
2: Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So the tire's still laying there to this day.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I think they finally got somebody to go down and get it, but I found it interesting that this was, you know, at least a decade or so before Patterson Gimlin.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit before.
1: Yeah. And, but the Native Americans knew. They had a real good idea what did it, and they knew, no, we're not going down there.
2: You know, that's the whole thing. Everybody thinks about Bluff Creek, and they think of Patterson-Gimlin. Yes, it was a big thing to get a film of one, but it was kind of a footnote, really, because there was so much that went on, and so many other people were involved in things there long before they got there.
1: Oh, Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that uh, my uncle pointed out to me was— the, um, the webpage for the happy camp chamber of commerce. I don't know if it's still there, but right on the, on the front page, it talked about a story from the 1800s. I think it was in the 1880s mm-hmm. of the, uh, the Chinese miners that, you know, they were very hard They're very diligent, um, had encountered one of these things. And that was the end of that. <laughs> oh, bad! <laughs> they, they—I uh, don't remember what the deal was, but uh, they got terrified. And so I don't know if maybe, because you know, in China you have the yeren, I think, is what they—one of the names for the creature there. So who knows? You know, maybe they also had a, um, uh, you know, some sort of lore in their in their um, oh, culture. Doubt.
2: Well, let's move on to the other stories. What are your thoughts on these other stories? I mean, I, I'm a little curious about the second one here, where this guy is, uh, he's our, was our age when this was written, and he was, wasn't afraid of these things. Not too, uh, not too good a position to be in, I don't think.
1: No. Oh. and how do you, you know, if you have an encounter with one of these things, how do you, you know, he's one of the very, 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 very few who you would say is not afraid of these things?
2: And this is in East Texas.
1: Yeah. So uh, we can't interview the guy. We don't know if this is all uh, just you know uh, bregadicio or or anything like that. But um, there, there were some it, interesting
2: tidbits in there. And one of them is pretty simple, I guess. I mean, remember I talk about you know you follow the food, and and the comment in there was. There's more sightings during deer season than any other time of the year. Well, yeah, that's they're following the game.
1: Sure, and also it kind of makes sense that not only that, but you have more hunters uh, more pushing the wilderness. More people see buildings. them. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's we've always said, you know, if you're going to have a sighting, you need two things: you need the sighter and the sightee. Exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but there's, I mean. You know, there's some other tidbits in there that are pretty well things that we hear everywhere, you know, the screams and smells and things like that. So, actually, I think well, there were several stories in there, wasn't it? In that first one or the second story? Yeah, I, mean? I think
1: so. And, and there was, you know, and this is the other thing it's the repeating patterns. And, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but it really is that ongoing. Uh, it's like what what jim said and you know he said the descriptions uh given by witnesses worldwide and let's think of australia for example oh yeah
2: yeah absolutely. They, they
1: exactly parallel what we encounter right so they're amazingly similar
2: like there's one point when they talk about this person heard a kind of growl when they get a little too close i can relate to that i i think i encountered one without uh sorry about the noise of the paper turning there folks but uh going over to my friend John's place and walking up that driveway with brush on one side and the, the blackberry bushes shook violently and there was a deep growl and I decided to turn around and go back the other way and never use that trail again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, and I don't know if they'd mentioned it in this story. One of the stories that we were looking at that's going into Bigfoot in history, talking about the Twig snapping
2: yeah. around you. Yeah. I
1: thought, how fascinating. Not a loud crunching or thump or anything like that. No, twig snapping.
2: We heard that in, uh, in Oregon in September. You know, we it, wasn't, did. it wasn't the heavy footfalls. It was very quiet. It was very stealthy moving, is what you could hear.
1: Yeah, very stealthy. And I have yet to run into elk, bear, deer, mountain lions that come towards you right in a group Mm -hmm. and try to surround you no and you know it's interesting even
2: those animals aren't super noisy even though they have hard hooves
1: right but they're they're going they're getting away from you
2: they are yes they're not
1: they're not trying to um you know uh surround you for an ambush
2: we're getting pretty close to being up on the hour so um any other thoughts or comments on these other stories there there's lots of interesting tidbits in them
1: there is and again just uh i'm glad everybody has i think the the takeaway from this with which is also the takeaway for our new series bigfoot history are you know are the repeating patterns
2: right and it's not our intent to pick every story apart all the details you know we kind of hit on some of the highlights, a little discussion. We don't want to bore everybody with our commentary. Your thoughts are more important than our commentary. So that's sort of what we're doing. You know, we give our two cents and then uh, we move on.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's a good point, Will. Um, folks, we love your comments. So leave comments. The more the better. They always bring up an interesting discussion and we would also like to hear your questions and if you've had encounters and you just want to reach out to us it's questions at creekdevil.com
2: absolutely and um for the weekend show i'm not i shouldn't say who's coming on but but back by popular request one of our uh ongoing situations and he had some really interesting stuff happen recently so I don't know if he's going to let us use his audio or not. He had some really good screams, but we'll talk to him about that. So with that, we'll sign off this episode. And folks, stay tuned for the weekend show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com.